We're going to look at the portion of Matthew 9 today that is verses 9 through 13. This is the calling of Matthew. And before we take a look at it, I was thinking this week, as I've been reading, as you guys have as well, through the book of Matthew, I got to this point, and I read it a number of times this week, and then I realized he's writing about himself. He's writing his own conversion story. And I just thought that was interesting. And, and it actually, it, it, it gave me a little bit of a, a different angle to look at it. Like, what is what he omits, perhaps, um, or what he highlights and emphasizes were obviously the things to him that were just deeply and most uh, of paramount importance. And so that was just a little, a little side notice that I thought I'd share with you, and perhaps we'll carry that into today. Um, so we're continuing through Matthew, of course, as we will for the time being, with the idea of looking through a lens, if you will, if you will like a pair of glasses, we put on a, a set of lenses to see um, Matthew through the kingdom of God, specifically through the people of the kingdom of God. So sorry, that's me. Um, the people, the ways of the kingdom, and we've said this ad nauseum, but I just say it again as, as an introduction and to, to remind us again, um, we're looking at the ways of the kingdom being defined. And, and in, of course, as we've said, Matthew's five, chapter 5, 6, and 7, he, he spent a lot of time instructing on this is the life of the kingdom. This is what it looks like. This is what, do I need to ditch this? It's cracking for me, though. Okay. Um, this is what it looks like. These are the things that we value. These are the, the distinctives of the kingdom. And then we see and we looked at it in Matthew 8. He begins to now take that ministry and those values in that system and that way of living is exemplified through Jesus. And we see, again, we won't go into it, but he does miraculous healings. And then last week, as we looked at the beginning of chapter 9, he establishes his authority. And of course, in healings, there is authority, but he's explicit in that. Now, I am, I am authoritative over all things. There is nothing that's outside of my authority in my realm of kingship and lordship in this kingdom of God. And he looked at, we looked at three things. All created things fall into the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has authority over the hearts of men and women for salvation. And he has authority over the spiritual realm as well. And there's nothing that's left outside of his authority. And so we're going to look at today, in this portion of the text, I would say that he's making another rather remarkable statement as to the template or the way of life of the kingdom of God. So let's look at Matthew 9 with the time that we have here. And I'll have to make sure I watch that clock. Matthew 9, beginning in verse 9, and we'll read through. I'm in Hebrews. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 9 is excellent. Matthew 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. I wonder what type of emphasis he had when he said that. We read that and we just go, follow me. You think it was stoic. I wonder, there was probably just some compulsion in that, right? Follow me. Follow me. But two words, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, 
they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yuck. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And I just read that last verse 13 again. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, this is your word, which is life and light. And we receive it today as such. Father, compel us by your spirit into right living. Open our hearts and illuminate for us the truth that is in scripture, Father, that we would be changed and not the same as we walk out of this door today. I pray, Father, that you would highlight to our hearts and to our minds, Lord, that which you would want for us, which might be outside of your lordship that we have withheld from you. Lord, we give it to you today that you, as we have already sung many times over, would receive the glory. Great God and King, in your name, amen. So my goal today in this message is to remind the many of us here, those of us that are in Christ, which is most likely the lot of us at this point, to remind us today of both the object, listen, the object and the means of our mission. What is the object and the means of our mission as Christians? We know what our mission is, do we not? It's what's the mission of the Christian life? Say it out loud. Proclaim the gospel, to take the gospel. It's the gospel. It wasn't a trick question. It's very easy. The mission of a Christian life is to proclaim the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is an aim of that mission, of course, and there's a means of that. And that's what I hope to remind us and to stir us and to compel us in today. God's kingdom has not come for the well and for the righteous. And he says that. Matthew says, records Jesus saying that. But he comes for what? He comes for the sick. And the sinner is what Jesus says. The outcast, the outsider. And we're going to look at the significance of what Matthew represents in this particular story as a calling into the kingdom of God. So he comes for the outcast and the outsider. And to point us to such a confidence that we have, listen, in Jesus. We have confidence in Jesus today. If our confidence is lying anywhere else, then we're missing the mark. Think about it. What a simple statement, and, and it's not a profound truth in the sense of we have heard it and we probably say it often to ourselves, but let's take a little inventory today. Where is your confidence lying? Is your confidence lying solely in him, as we've said, the one in whom all things are for and through and by? Or are they perhaps in something else? Are they resting in some terrestrial means something that will fade and something, of course, that will one day be gone. But see, today as a Christian, we have such a confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have confidence in his life as we've been studying in Matthew. We have confidence in his death as we sing Sunday in and Sunday out and as we remind ourselves because we stand in newness of life. And of course, we have confidence in his resurrection because his resurrection stands as the demarcation of his ascension into all authority and to lordship and preeminence over all things, which again, we talked last week. We have confidence in these things, you guys. We don't just have belief, but we have confidence that holds us and roots us and places us and keeps us and preserves us 
maintains us and compels us in every other thing that we might get from that. That's what confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ does. It's living and it's active. And we need to have that constantly reminded because it's a confident suck out there. Because what's happening is culture wants us to, it wants to deflect our means of confidence. It wants us to place them in other places, in 401ks and in, in vacation packages and salaries and whatever else. And some of you are going, I don't have one of those. Where do you get one of those? But you know what I'm saying? It wants us to place our confidence in other things. And today I feel like the Lord is just saying, now, Mike, your confidence is in me and in me alone. It's not on the surety of anything you're putting your hand to, but it's in me and in me alone. So I was thinking, man, these statements that Jesus makes, he, what a shock that had to have been to the Pharisees. Don't you think for him to say that? Because think about it, up until this very point, the Pharisee's sole existence or, or the existence of the Jew has basically been waiting for a Messiah to come back for them and them alone. Their whole existence has been uh, piety and, and, and ritual purification in preparation for the coming Messiah. And so now what Jesus is saying to this group of men who have dedicated their life seemingly to this thing, he's saying, listen, I'm not coming for you, but I'm coming for this guy over here. And let's look at Matthew here for a quick second. Because what does Matthew represent in terms of the gospel's aim and effect? First and foremost, we know that he was a tax collector, all right? But do we understand the cultural implications of a tax collector? Okay, some of you do, huh? (laughs) If you understand it now, it was probably even worse then, right? You think it's corrupt now? It was really corrupt then. So Matthew is a traitor. In the eyes of a Jew, he's a traitor. He's in league with the authority of the time of Rome. And not only is he working for them, not only is he you know, helping to extend the tent pigs of their kingdom, but he's also exacting fines and taxes for imports and other things, and not only doing so, but in a rather unscrupulous manner oftentimes. And I don't know whether that's true about Matthew or not, but it could very well have been true about Matthew that that was the type of person that he was. And so, well, I'm getting, come on up. So you just wait, wave that on the side of me. So, so this is, how, but this is Matthew. So Matthew is, and, and, it, and it says it here in verse um, 11, when they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a tax collector and a sinner. He was like, there could be nothing lower for them than Matthew, right? The lowest of the low of the low of the low. And it's like, and here's Matthew, and they're scraping him off the bottom of their shoe. And so that's, that's what Matthew, so when we think about, again, the aim of the gospel, Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not coming for you, for you that think you are righteous, for you that have prepared yourself in such a way, and we'll look, at, we'll look at the significance of this statement of mercy and sacrifice. This is really the crux of it. But I'm coming for those. And it's just another beautiful picture of, of both the aim but the reach of the gospel. Guys, a reminder again, there is nobody outside of the aim and the reach of the gospel. There is nobody that's too far gone. And we cannot have these predisposed ideas of that whether someone's worth is, the, is worth the effort of us to go to them. And so it's like, 
we're all created in the image of God, as are those. And so we have to put away these things that we have, um, dispositions or, man, biases. Yes, thank you, biases. So this is what Matthew is dealing with. Um, Matthew's a tax collector. He's a sinner in the eyes of the Pharisee. It's like, why are you even bothering? Um, This guy's not worth it. But, of course, we see that it is. And it's interesting Um, I think what makes Matthew, verse 9, so remarkable when we talked about just those two words is is kind of the immediacy that Matthew paints of this picture. And I just want to say again, in terms of the call of the gospel, when the gospel is presented and when the Lord Jesus draws someone to himself, it is effective. It is an effective calling. There is nobody who can resist the call of the gospel when it's presented. And I believe that Matthew is showing that to us here. Now, we can also assume that it's probably safe to say that Matthew has heard some or is familiar with who Jesus is and has probably even heard some of Jesus' teaching at one point. So, I mean, that might be a little bit of creative license in a sense, but I think historically speaking, there's enough context to assume that. But what we do see, though, is Jesus says, follow me, and it's basically immediately Matthew stands up and follows Jesus. When the gospel is presented in such a way When the Lord Jesus is convicting hearts, you guys, it is irresistible. The gospel draws people. The kingdom of God through the gospel draws people in in such a way that it requires immediate effect and obedience. And then suddenly in verse 10, we find ourselves and we're in his his home. So he says, follow me. He immediately stands up and he follows the Lord Jesus. And in verse 10, we're in the home of Matthew. And it's like really quick and kind of condensed story that Matthew paints for us. We're in the home of Matthew, and what I love about this picture, again, just in terms of the gospel, we're looking all through this, this gospel kingdom life lens. Here we are, the lowest of the low, Jesus and his disciples, and it says they are reclining at the table. This reclining, you guys, it's more than just like a laying on his side with his arm on a pillow. It, it was intentional. It was an identification. There was communing that was happening There was most likely a shared meal that was happening. It went much more than him just sitting in these people's home talking. He was intentionally identifying with Matthew, and as verse 10 says, the many, that wasn't just Matthew, but it was the many of Matthew's co-workers, the many of the tax collectors, the sinners, the low of the low of the low, and Jesus and his disciples are intentionally identifying. And it was a beautiful picture, again, a reminder that when he reached out, it says that he reached out and touched the leper. When the gospel goes and when the gospel is preached, Jesus is not afraid of being contaminated. Jesus is not afraid of becoming ritually unpure. His mission, his aim, his desire was to identify because we'll see, of course, all of this is leading to the ultimate and absolute contamination where Jesus Christ through the cross identifies with our sin, takes on our sin upon himself, and becomes it for our sake. So there's no, nothing within the gospel that says that, that this, is, this is unclean and unworthy and is not worth the time and the effort. And so that's just another beautiful picture of here's Jesus, and he's sitting at the table with his disciples, and they're reclining. And I just see this like there's, there's probably smiles and pleasantries and conversation and inquiries and there's truth that's being spoken and and there's nothing that says 
that, you know, and, and 50 men were added that day, you know, to the, to the disciples. At this point, Jesus is just calling, but we can assume perhaps that the gospel was preached in that moment and that uh, hopefully eyes and, and minds were open for, for more inquiry. But, um, but the aim, I believe, the reason I think that Matthew includes that is, is for us to see um, that the gospel goes to where people are. The gospel reaches out and reaches to but the Pharisees, here they are once again, and they only care about one thing. That's looking good. That's doing the right thing, right? That's all they care about, doing the right thing. For a Pharisee, they found their value, their worth, and their confidence from their righteousness. That it came from their lawful obedience that derived all their sense of worth and their value. And so they're looking at Jesus and they're going, man, what is this guy doing? He is unclean, and he's hanging out with the lows and the nasties. But what does Jesus say to them? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came for to call righteous. Excuse me, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. What is the intent of this statement? This is where I want to spend the rest of the morning. This statement, I have not come for the well, but for the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinner. There's an intentional juxtaposition of the two kingdom covenants or the, of the two covenants within God's realm and his rule. We've got the juxtaposition of the old and the new covenant, the sacrifice and mercy. And where I'm moving us today is to see that mercy is foundational in the new covenant. Not just understanding mercy that's been received, but living in a space of mercy that is extended and given because the gospel demands it, and the gospel, it's woven into the fiber and the foundation of the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at this further. So he's, he's comparing the old and the new. There's the requirements that were given to Moses in the Old Testament for the ongoing purification of his people, of, of the Israelites, as throughout the ages that they would remain separate and holy his and set apart and pure that they may be drawn close to him. Sacrifice. The sacrifice for a Pharisee. Boy, that goes deep. They understood what that meant. He didn't even have to explain it. Now, for us, we have to go, man, that doesn't have modern cultural context. But as a Christian, we understand the Old Testament is rife with sacrifice. Of course, pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, foreshadowing that which he would give. But let me say this, God's kingdom is not about, this is what Jesus is saying, God's kingdom is not about the inward-facing, the man-centric, transactional view of righteousness before God obtained through lawful observance. That is not what God's kingdom is about, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I desire mercy. I don't desire sacrifice. I no longer desire this transactional type of existence between and relationship between us. Where the demand for sacrifice, think about it, you guys. Remember the Old Testament. Over and over and over and over and over again. And over again. Sacrifice was necessary so that this people could be near to him. And I was even thinking about this. You go to offer your sacrifice in the Old Testament, and you're like, oh, man, I don't want to do this again. And the priest's like, well, that's the sin of complacency. 
So now you need to make another sacrifice. How easy it was to, to sacrifice and then to sin. And it's just this perpetual thing. And so for the Pharisee, here's Jesus now saying, this doesn't even have its place anymore. I'm about to fulfill this. What a remarkable statement that he was making at this time. Of himself, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that he came not to put an end to the law of the first covenant, and this is so important, but to instead fulfill its just demands and requirements. He didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law, the law being that which required the sacrifice. And as its fulfillment for us today, Jesus obtained our eternal peace with God. Like, let's just think about this for a moment. The need for no more sacrifice. That through his sacrifice, as we took the elements today in remembrance of such a thing, our eternal peace, eternal peace, has been secured with God. There's no more requirement nor necessity for priests to sacrifice. We don't need them to go into the holy places any longer. In Hebrews as I mistakenly went to earlier, that's what Hebrews is about. Jesus Christ went into the holy places, went in as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus has done for all mankind once for all time what the Pharisees were looking for over and over and over again. The ministry of Jesus, you guys, is so far superior in every way. So far. Say this with me. Jesus is better. Say it again, Becky. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Guys, in every single way, Jesus is better. His promises are better. His sacrifice is better. His his word is better. His will and his plan is better. Think of it and it's better, you guys. Again, what a confidence we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's better in every way. But I want to say this, that the awe and the wonder of the Christian life comes by the fact that our identification with him, by grace and through faith, we participate in that better nature. We participate in the righteousness of God. We are seen as God's righteousness because of how better and how superior he is. And man, that is the wonder of the Christian life. That's the joy of the Christian life. That's the awe of the Christian life, that it's done apart from our own doing. What a beautiful thing. And so, but again, I want to say, Jesus isn't saying that the law is unimportant, okay? He's not saying that in this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It isn't that the law is unimportant, but instead, listen, it is perfectly fulfilled on a continual basis through Jesus perfectly fulfilled ongoingly by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now turn with me to Hebrews. It wasn't completely a mistake. Mm-hmm. Psych! Hebrews chapter 10. I just want to read these. I want to read these verses. It's a, it's a small chunk, but stick with me here. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law, all right? The fulfillment of the law. Here's the importance. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 10. When he said, 
above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law, as we've already been saying this morning. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. What's he talking about? Covenants. He's done away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we have been sanctified. Excuse me, very important word I left out. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. There's the futility of the Pharisees' thinking. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected. Thanks, yeah, we do need to back up, get a little runway. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Whoa, what a statement for us, you guys. Read that again. For by a single offering, who is the offering? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is you and I. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Wow. What a statement, huh? You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings. He does away with the first, he says, in order to establish the second. By fulfilling the law's requirements, as we've seen and as we've read, and as I've said, that which the first covenant required, the covenant with Moses, the covenant he made with the Israelites in the wilderness, it necessitated it. By fulfilling the law's requirements, he has enacted the second. He's ushered in. He's brought in the new. So super important, you guys. We can't live in the old. We have to live in the new. And what is the new covenant that he has made with us? Do you know what it is? It's a covenant of grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what a juxtaposition. Mercy, not sacrifice. Works and grace. Works and grace, the old and the new, and the new is where we live. The new is where we exist. The new is what we walk in, what we believe, what we think. Grace, you guys, grace, grace and not works. He doesn't want our sacrifices. Why? Not because he doesn't want us to do good works. Good works are a result of a regenerate heart. It's because they're, not, they're unnecessary, they don't fulfill anything that was needed. They're not pleasing to him in the sense of their effectualness. He just wants us. He wants our hearts, which is why now his law, as he says, is written upon our hearts, because from our hearts flows everything else. So it's the covenant of grace. The, the, this might be one of the very few times from this pulpit the message 
translation is going to be read. But I'm going to read it because I liked the way it phrased this. (laughs) Hold your breath. I'm reading from the message. Okay. This portion of Hebrews, listen to this. It was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect an imperfect people. Beautiful. Perfect sacrifice by a perfect man to perfect an imperfect people. By that single offering, he did everything that needed to be done for everyone who takes part in the purifying process. He did everything that was needed for everyone. I thought that was great. So hopefully you enjoyed that as well. Good. If this need for continual sin offering via sacrifice is no longer needed, if it's no longer what God desires nor requires, then what is We have to ask ourselves that question. What is the response to the fact that the sacrifice has been fulfilled? His kingdom in the new covenant, in the new way of living, in the new way of following him, his kingdom is about this. It's the outward-facing, faithful extension of his love towards others in word and in deed. That is what his kingdom is about. It's no longer this between God and I and keeping myself close to God because now Jesus stands in your place and keeps you close to God the Father. And instead, as he does that, he desires that we would be so faithful to extend the same promise and hope and joy and life and love that we have received in fullness. May I remind you, without payment, right? We paid nothing for it, therefore require nothing on its behalf. We give it freely and indiscriminately. This is what now the new covenant is about. And to move into this is to move. Listen, I thought of this this week. We're moving past the cross. And I don't mean in a sense of where we no longer consider nor live in the truthfulness of it. But you guys, if this is the cross, man, we are. God desires us to be so further this way. That's what this is. This is to move past the cross. It's to, it's to exchange this idea of, of living in a transactional type of way. So as I was saying, to move past this is, is, is to move past the cross, which I believe is where the Lord wants for us to live. Um, and th- that is new creation life. It's the other side of the cross, and we've, we've said that before. It's the, the expression of this is new creation life. The, the expression of this faithful extension of his love towards others is new creation life. We've talked about this before, but in case you're newer to Capital City, we believe so strongly in the fact that when Paul says that if anyone is in, cre- in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation, that new creation is so much more than just a life that is yeah, you know, enhanced by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life that's completely exchanged. The old way removed and the new way has been put in its place. So there's a whole new way to live. And again, this is what we're looking at through Matthew, this new way of living. And in this new way of living, mercy is foundational to God's eternal kingdom because it's woven into the fabric of its very nature. They're inseparable. The kingdom of God and mercy are inseparable. The righteous God, the holy God, the perfectly just God extended to humankind the embodiment of mercy. Listen, 
God extended to all of humanity the embodiment of mercy in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the supreme expression of mercy. You want to understand what mercy is, look no further than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the standard for mercy by which we draw from. When we're tempted to come up short, and this is so simple, with someone or in some circumstance where we don't have or we don't feel like mustering up the grace or the mercy that that person probably deserves, doggone it, remember what was given to you. Remember. There's nothing better in you than the next person. You received without payment. Therefore, give without requiring pay. Jesus is the standard for mercy. We look at the cross, but Hebrews again is going to tell us that the cross was the joy of Jesus. That, that blows my mind when I consider that. Why? Because he looked through the cross. Because he saw each one of us because he saw his greater plan of what God was doing to redeem humanity. And he understood, because he understood the law, that it was necessary for the sacrifice to be made. And it was his joy. God, how, how many times are we just put out by something because it cuts across some granular thing in our desire and want pattern? But man, could you imagine if Jesus was like, I don't have time for this? I don't want to do this. We know that he didn't want to do it too. I mean, his prayer to the Father before is like, take this cup from my hand. But he still knew it was his joy and it was his, his necessity to go. The suffering for Jesus was a joy. The shame was a joy because of the effects that it would have. How do we not only know, but how do we apprehend this type of mercy that's shown and embodied in Jesus Christ? for ourselves in such a way that it permeates to the core of how we think and how we live. Matthew is quoting, excuse me, Jesus in Matthew is quoting from Hosea. Turn with me to Hosea. I'm going to try to do this quick, but I'm going to ask you guys, um, I'm going to let you know ahead of time, I'm going to go longer than anticipated this morning. Because I don't want to rush and you don't want me to rush. Hosea chapter 6 What's recorded, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Let's look at this. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And I, if I were you, if you're the, the underlying kind, underline that in your Bibles. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. Hewn is to like to take an axe to something, to cut down. I have hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. And here it is, for I desire... I desire, says the Lord God, steadfast love and not sacrifice. And then look at the statement that he makes, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is going to make the exact same quote in a couple chapters down the road in Matthew chapter 12. He's going to say again, 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. But he's going to follow it up and he's going to say to the Pharisees, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. If you would have known what this means. Listen, you guys, knowledge of God is the knowledge of mercy. That's what Hosea, that's what the Lord is speaking through the mouth of Hosea. For the knowledge of God, I desire steadfast love, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Why is the knowledge of God the knowledge of mercy? Because he himself is mercy. He's not just merciful, but he is mercy. Just like he is love, just like he is peace, so too is God mercy. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loves us, we know that text very well, his intent wasn't to say that God had a, a large volume of mercy. It wasn't to say that this excessive amount of mercy that God had for us, it was to say that mercy, being rich in mercy, is that it abounds from the eternal well that is God himself. Mercy springs forth to to humanity from God, from his essence, because he is. Therefore, to know God is to know mercy in its truest sense. And I want to say to you guys again, as a confidence booster, We have such the the best, most pleasurable insight into some of the most significant things in life. Think of people that just are dying and struggling to understand love and to understand truth and to understand peace. And brothers and sisters, we have all of that expressed to us through his word and in the person of Jesus Christ. We can know true mercy because we know the truth. We can know true love because we know the truth. But, not only are we to know of mercy, but we are to live as extensions of mercy. As Jesus was an extension of mercy unto us and unto those uh, during his ministry on earth. God's plan was to show us mercy, its ways through the actions and the interactions of Jesus here on earth. A couple of things and then I'm going to land in the next five to ten minutes. When we look at Jesus, what aspects of mercy do we see? What are the aspects of mercy that we see? In Jesus, we see that mercy is inexhaustible. And again, I believe that's what Paul was speaking of in Ephesians 2. Being rich in mercy, it's inexhaustible in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that mercy is long-suffering. We see that mercy is unmerited. We see that mercy is rooted in forgiveness. We see that mercy is compassionate, it's outward focused, and it's restorative, really important. Mercy's aim is the wholeness of the individual. It's the restoration of the person on whom it's being enacted. When God saves you, when God saved me and and all those whom he will save, he saves them wholly and completely, warts and all. He doesn't just save the good stuff that makes him happy. He, re- he saves all of us. That's the extension of mercy. All of our life, all of our crud, all of our stuff, even still, not only was mercy there then, mercy is here for us now. 
through the person of Jesus Christ. We go back to Jesus. We go back to the better, the truer Adam. We go back to the better, the truer sacrifice when we're in need of mercy. Mercy is possessive, and it's also effective. Peter says this that in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's possessive. It takes for itself, and it's effective. It completes that which it sets out to do through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. So I have two questions, and this is how I want to land today. In light of this, in light of the fact that Jesus is saying to us as new creation, I desire you to live outward and not inward. I don't want your righteous acts because I tell you, the righteous acts of of Jesus are far better. That's what God wants today. He wants us to live as extensions of his mercy into culture and into our spheres of influence. So these are the two questions that I have in light of this. The first is this. When the world sees us, what does it see? When the world sees us, what does it see? When people see us individually, as well as a faith community, what does it see? I mean, what does it really see? Not just on a Sunday when we put on our best sometimes and we desire to give God perhaps the most of our week at that moment. But I'm saying, what does it really see when it looks at us in those moments, in the moments that we think people aren't watching? Do they see a Pharisee or do they see Jesus? Do they see those who are finding their worth and value from their lawful obedience or do they see those who are living in grace because of the work of Jesus Christ and are resting in grace as imperfect creatures but yet having been made perfect one day through the perfect man? Do they see Pharisees or do they see Jesus? As a faith community, does the world see Christ followers who are finding their value and their confidence from obedience to the law, or do they see a grace-filled, a grace-empowered community of believers whose living in, in actions are an ongoing awareness of the breadth of the free gift that the Lord Jesus Christ gave to us? Ooh, watching video clips during the sermon, dude, is not a good idea. And I'm going to embarrass the heck out of you so you don't do it again. <laughs> Just come on. Oh, mercy. All right. I've got plenty of it for you anyway, brother. I'm just having fun. But you have to learn from your mistakes. So what does the world see? Does the world look at us and do they see a Pharisee or do they see Jesus? Do they see a Pharisee or do they see Jesus? And let me ask you this. What do we see? When Jesus saw Matthew, what did Jesus see? Did he see a tax collector, a sinner, and the lowest of low? Or did he see someone created in the image of God, 
whose aim it was to restore and was to bring into his kingdom. What do we see, you guys? As the Pharisees saw, do we see tax collectors? Do we show disdain? Do we show partiality? Do we show a lack of compassion? Or do we see them as they truly are, as Jesus saw them in, in, in Jesus saw Matthew in his heart, not by the outward appearance, those who God is drawing to himself. Is that who we see? See, for the Christian, I would say, this is for us today that are Christians that are following the Lord Jesus. We have to resist the attitude of the Pharisee. Because what's God saying? He doesn't want our works. He doesn't want it, you guys. Put it aside. He's already satisfied. And I feel like some of you, some of us need to hear that today. God is already satisfied with you. He doesn't need you to try to add to it because he's satisfied through the son Jesus. And all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ to receive the unmerited benefit of his satisfaction. For the Christian, he's saying God is satisfied. But perhaps for those that we might come into contact with, or perhaps there's someone here this morning that's outside of Christ in their heart. Maybe they've been coming. Maybe you've been like a Pharisee. And you've been coming because you think that's what God desired when really what God just wants is your heart. What I think God is saying today is that he wants you to know the joy, the comfort, and the freedom that can be experienced in this present life because of the mercy that he has already shown you. Whether you know that mercy or not, it is there for you to have and to experience. And my prayer today is that the Lord would give us the grace as believers not to live as Pharisees, but to live as Jesus did. To not be concerned with being contaminated, to not not be concerned with perceived social status. I mean, I'm telling you, fishermen are one thing, right? But a tax collector, that was a whole new low for Jesus. He doesn't want us to be worried about those things. But it requires grace. It requires revelation. It requires understanding. It requires the knowledge of God in order to grow and to be able to walk these things out. May the Lord give us the grace today to do so. Amen.